Brave New Radio. Yes. We're, this is a very special show for us tonight, isn't it, Dr. Esteban Marconi? It certainly is, and that's my co-host, uh, Professor David Kirk Phelps. Who is I and me, and we're here at Music Biz 101 more every Wednesday night, live at 8 p.m. on the East Coast, 5 p.m. on the West Coast. Correct. What time is it in Hawaii? Oh, gosh. An unknown time that doesn't need to... We have no listeners in Hawaii. They stopped. Ah. There have been a number of lawsuits with our Hawaiian affiliates, and we should not get into them because of certain Im gag orders. Yes, I don't know what time it is in Hawaii. I think they're six hours behind. Could so, be. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is we're acting like this is a Wednesday night at 8 p.m., but, but what is this? No, in, in reality, oh. shh, don't tell the listeners. It's really 9.31 in the a.m. on oh, a Wednesday gosh, morning. I'm exhausted. I know, I'm very sleepy. We're actually doing this. This is our first bed-in show. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're all, uh, all of us are spooning together, including Ashley Veltner. And this is completely inappropriate with the student engineer. Ashley, thank you for the spooning. Really yes. appreciate it. And uh, this is our great, great show. We're going to have an excellent guest. We assume, we assume it'll be an excellent show, an excellent yes. guest. We won't know until it's over. Roger McGuinn, Ooh. formerly the lead dude from The Birds with from a Y. From The Birds. A prolific songwriter, great musician, banjo, 12-string guitar, um, just an all-around um, perfect musician for the sound that he uh, sort of invented, a combination of sitar and guitar, and as he said many times, incorporating some feelings from even John Coltrane. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one of the most influential guitarists uh, in the rock and roll era mm -hmm. that it, to this generation, nobody knows probably who is. They might know some of the songs. Uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, which was a Dylan song. Turn, 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 which was was a Pete Seeger song. And that is uh, really why we're here, isn't it? That's right. Our friend George Dassinger is mm -hmm. putting on a big Pete Seeger 100th birthday. But, uh, yeah, we're here because of a Pete Seeger thing. We'll talk with him about the Pete Seeger thing. And, um, Pete Seeger's celebration of his would-be 100th birthday. And Pete Seeger, one of the most influential songwriters of the 20th century. Very um, much so. Yes. So we'll get to that real quick. Uh, for you, those of you who are actually listening, go to our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that weekly newsletter because then every week we'll send you a newsletter. Follow us on Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook at musicbiz101wp. And then we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, the, the Spotify with our fantastic podcast. We mm -hmm. want to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. <sighs> CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine. 
They, a wealth manager and the president of They Wealth Management. Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson manage their investments and plan out for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan out for a rock and roll hall of famer, just called me on my cell phone. That sounds like the start of a a song. Rock and roll, what I call rock and roll hall of famer. Call me on my cell phone and talked about Christine Oive, wealth management. So anyway, she does great things. Give Christine Oive a call at 732-455-1510. Email her, Christine at theywealth.com for advisement. Take the last oil off for savings. Honestly, you should do that. Managing your band 6th edition, it is out. You should know about it, and it's available if you cared at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But only if you cared to care. Ah. You might care. We are one of the best, uh, well, I was one of your best students ever, but we are one of the best music business programs in the United States of America. That is correct. Who said that? Billboard Magazine said so. Second year in a row. Ah. Third of the last five, Mm -hmm. I believe. And this is a year five of our show. This will be episode 200 and something. And uh, we're at this point now, (laughs) we're waiting for Roger McGuinn. So Roger McGuinn. He has a rotary phone. A frustrated Rock and Roll Hall of Famer just yeah. called me on my cell phone. Three times now. <laughs> this is his third time trying to call in. <clears throat> These things happen, so hopefully uh, it goes through. Roger, can you hear us? Yes, I, I hear you. There we go. This is Dave, so thank you very much for... Yes, uh, thank you. finally got you through. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So I'm uh, Professor David Kirk Philp, and then uh, we're here with Dr. Steve Marconi. Yes, that's me. And we're happy to have you on Music Biz 101 and more. Nice to be here. So you invented the radio, Mr. Dr. Marconi. I only wish if the name was spelled with an I at the end, but I have an E at the end. Oh, uh, We're guessing somebody never dotted the I somewhere. Uh Uh-huh. So anyway, Roger, I have two um, times that I've met you. I was an opening act for you one time in the early 70s. I was on Epic Records in a group called Jam Factory. We opened for the Birds. It was one of our highlights. Where was that? It was someplace upstate New York. Maybe uh, some... College in Roger in uh, Rochester or something, and then after yeah, the we, we used to work a lot of the uh, like Sunny and different yeah different right. uh, New York colleges yeah right, and after uh, the band broke up about 1973 plus, uh, I ran wound up running a program about the music business at Syracuse University, and at uh-huh. that time at Syracuse University, one of the um, uh, alums on our guest uh, lecture series brought up a series of different, uh, each Friday brought up a, a different person. And okay. you were a guest between 1973 and maybe 77, 78. And let me jog your memory because I was telling Professor Dave here about it. And you came to the lecture. It was in a um, an auditorium about... Um, I don't know, five, seven hundred students, and you had this suitcase with you. And everybody's yeah, looking. Briefcase telephone. Shh, that's telephone. right. You had your briefcase telephone, and you just made the day. You opened up that suitcase, and there was this huge, heavy thing in there, and actually <laughs> you made a call and connected with someone. And we yeah, all went well, bananas. Well, that was, uh, it was a briefcase, not a suitcase. Oh. <laughs> uh, just a regular briefcase, but. Inside was a 25-watt transceiver, uh, two-way radio, you know, VHF frequencies in the 150 megahertz band, 152 megahertz. And I used to use it on airplanes. I'd ask the flight attendant, there were stewardesses back then, 
to talk to the captain, ask him if I could make a phone call. And she'd go up there and say, there's this guy back there who wants to make a phone call on his briefcase telephone. And the captain would say, okay, yeah, sure. So she'd come back and say, yeah, the captain said it's fine. And so it was 25 watts. Now, i got to tell you, cell phones are less than half, they're about half a watt. Right. So this thing is 50 times more powerful than a cell phone. And the captain let me use it, and it didn't do any damage to the plane. <laughs> ah. or, you know, isn't that funny? Yeah, that's great. Interesting, huh? Yeah, so yeah. were you uh, curious, or were you always sort of on the front end of technology? Well, my grandfather was an engineer in Chicago, and he took me to the Museum of Science and Industry every Sunday. And mm. so I, I got sort of, I got sort of a, an engineering background, uh, you know, at an early age. So I've been into uh, gadgets all my life. Ah, ah. So you must have been extremely excited. How did you get a, a, a hand on that phone? Well, I was, um, let's see, how did I, I can't remember. I was, I was dealing with this uh, company. I was having something repaired. And they said, you know, we could make you uh, a phone. We could take a, a boat radio, like a marine uh, radio, mm -hmm. and, and change the frequencies to the telephone frequencies and put it in a briefcase for you and put a battery pack in, and you could make phone calls on that. So I said, yeah, and, <laughs> and they built that for me. And then I, uh, that, then another company called, uh, I forget what it's called, but they made one, uh, like, from the factory where it was really, you know, a dedicated uh, mobile telephone mm -hmm. in a briefcase. Mm -hmm. And it had, like, uh, 10 uh, D-cell rechargeable batteries and a <laughs> little <clears throat> strip antenna in the lid of the, uh, of the briefcase. And that you could uh, you could plug it into an external antenna. So it, it was a manufactured thing. They they made it kind of for the government, I think. You know, for uh, like government officials to be uh, mobile. Now, was there a service to uh, charged for any uh, yeah, network? Was, or? A, yeah, it was a regular telephone company. The Bell Telephone ah. Company had a mo mobile service. It's mm. the same thing as a car phone, but it was in a briefcase. Ah, very interesting. Okay, so. Um, did that give you, I don't, I'm trying to not put words in your mouth, but sort of the um, foundation for going 12-string and experimenting with sounds and putting compressors on and, uh, you know, you talk about different uh, sounds that you got in the uh, early recordings and sitar-like sounds and so on and so forth. Was this sort of the well, foundation? I've always been into technology. This, this, no, the briefcase telephone was not the foundation of my, my experimentation. I, I started doing that before I got the telephone. That was why I got the telephone, because, mm -hmm. <laughs> because I was going to a, a radio store, you know, to a radio store to get something repaired. I forget what it was. So I've been into walkie-talkies and all kinds of uh, radio de devices all my life, um, mm -hmm. like, ham radio, like ham radio, that sort of thing. Right, right. Okay, moving to uh, Pete Seeger's 100th is really why yeah. we're having this um, little celebration Precisely. here. As, as one of oh, the yeah. one of the uh, professors here has had his PR class put together a whole sort of celebration for May 3rd, and even the uh, showing of the power of song. And um, what was your? I know, of course, you, <laughs> excuse me, you had some association with Pete Seeger. Uh, were you able to get close to him in terms of, you know, personal conversations and so on? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I've been I've been to his house a couple of times. I recorded him on an album I did back in 2002, 
called Treasures from the Folk End. And we, we drove up the hill to his house in Beacon, New York, and recorded him and me playing a couple of songs. And it ended up on a Grammy-nominated album called Treasures from the Folk End. Mm-hmm. Also, Joan Baez and Judy Collins and a lot of other folk singers on there. So I knew Pete, and then uh, Pete, Pete was at a thing called In Their Own Words at the Bottom Line. And uh, Ted Hawkins and uh, who's the other guy? Joe South, jo- Joe South who wrote uh, Games People Play. Mm-hmm. And Pete and I were, were all songwriters, and we talked about songs that we had written and songs we wish, wished we'd mm-hmm. written. And one of them was, was The Bells of Rumney. And Pete, after I played that, Pete came to the dressing room and he said, I've never heard bells sung so well. <laughs> made, my, made, made my day, you know, it's like... And then Pete and I would correspond. He, he never got into a computer. He, he believed that uh, computers were too elitist. It, you know, mm-hmm. not, everybody, not everybody could afford one, so he, he wouldn't have one. Mm-hmm. But he, he used to write me in longhand on legal pad and, and you know, send me letters and stuff. We, we wrote back and forth. I got a bunch of postcards from him and so on. And he, uh, he read a book I was working on and said he liked it. And I, I read his book and told you know, and mm-hmm. then he told me, he sent me a letter telling me that he changed his arrangement of turn, turn, turn to be more like the bird's arrangement mm-hmm. because he liked it. He liked it, and he, he thought, well, that's the one everybody knows, so I might as well make it like that. Right. So he, wrote it, he wrote it out like uh, my arrangement, basically, of, of turn, turn, turn. Right. That was a big, thr- big thrill. And then I got to um, be at his 90th birthday party at Madison Square Garden, and that was great. Mm-hmm. So. He, and and we talk on the telephone. He he, he wasn't against the telephone. <laughs> everybody has one, but he was always trying to steer me into the, his political belief, which is uh, separate from mine. But that's okay. Right. You know, I, I loved his music. I loved his music, and I loved the guy. He was he was great. Mm-hmm. Did you find that he was sort of uh, was he trusting in a lot of people, or was he sort of standoffish until uh, oh no he figured you out? No, he he was very warm. He was very warm and friendly. Uh, I think uh, Toshi used to kind of insulate him and keep him from people because you know how it is when you're a celebrity, everybody wants something from you. Sure. So she, was, she, was, she was his gatekeeper, and he, he gave her credit for being the brains of the operation. Mm. <laughs> he came up with all the good, good ideas for him, and, and he just went along with them. But, but he was a very, very bright guy and uh, very likable. I, I really loved him. You know, as I, I watched him when I was a kid. I used to be... Uh, live in Chicago and, and go to the uh, orchestra hall where mm-hmm. the Weavers played. And then after he split away from the Weavers, he would do solo concerts. And I was a little skeptical that he'd be able to be as exciting as the Weavers all by himself, but I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Because he got up there with about four instruments and he, he told stories and got the audience singing in harmony. And I went, man, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And guess what? <laughs> guess what? I'm doing it. All right. <laughs> Now, what made you choose, uh, out of all his songs, what made you choose Turn, Turn, Turn? Well, I just loved the song. I'd worked on it with Judy Collins. I was the musical director on Judy Collins' third album for Elektra, and she did Bells of Rumney and Turn, Turn, Turn on that album. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard, Pete, I'd heard Pete do them in concert as well, and they're both great songs. You know, They're, they're songs that he put together from an existing poem. He took existing pieces and put them together and he had he had a great knack for that he could take something somebody else had written and put a tune to it he told a story he said you know 
my publisher wrote me a letter, 1959, saying, Pete, can't you write songs more like Goodnight Irene? I can't spell these protest songs you keep writing. <laughs> and he, he said, I got angry. He said, you got yourself, a, you better get yourself another songwriter because that's the only kind of song I know how to write. And he pulls a poem out of his pocket, said, to everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Mm. And he put a little tune to it, put two lines to make it come out even, a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. And that little phrase, turn, 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 to tie it all together. He said, I sang it around, never expecting it to be well-known, and this guy I never met made a hit record out of it. <laughs> and that was, that was me. That was and like, wow. it was some hit, he, of course. Yeah, number one. He didn't remember because I'd met him back when I was 16. He was supposed to play a concert at the Navy Pier, and for some reason, the concert got canceled, but Pete, being the guy he was, didn't want anybody to go away disappointed. So he did an impromptu concert on the loading dock of the Navy Pier. Mm. And I was, I was one of the kids hanging around. I got to talk to him. I said, hey, Pete, you're really popular now. How do you account for that? And he said, well, I think it's because I got people singing along with me. They hear themselves singing, and then they like me. <laughs> now, did he take care of business? I mean, was his copyrights and publishing and... In, in, in order? Well, was, no, because of his political... Well, I, I think he did. He had uh, Harold Leventhal to do that, I think. And then Toshi was kind of a business manager as well. But he was of the belief that, that uh, people should be distributing the wealth to people who really wrote the songs. And mm -hmm. he was for... Um, he was against the idea that you could take a public domain song and get royalties on it. Mm. He thought you, if some, somebody in Africa had written a song like Kumbaya, uh, they should be getting royalties for it. So that, that never happened. But I think there is a society for distri distribution of royalties. I, I haven't checked it out. But he was in, involved in something like that. And he was very charitable. One time he was playing in Florida, and I think he was getting you know thousands of dollars for his performance. And he got back in those days, he got it in cash. Mm -hmm. So he, was, he had all this money, and he bumped into a, a down-and-out folk singer that he knew, and he just gave him all the money. He kept enough to get home on. That was it. Wow. Wow, that's some story. Yeah. Yeah. So he must have, well, <laughs> upstairs now, he must be uh, excited that, um, was it We Shall Overcome? What just became public domain? I can't remember which one oh, yeah. of those anthems. Yeah, yeah. You know, that he... Certainly was associated with. You bring up a nice. Yes, he was. You bring up a nice point though when you were talking about. Uh, he pulled out this piece of paper from his um, pocket, and there was these uh, this great, actually poetic, couple of lines. Uh, when I was on the road in the uh, early seventies, uh, I had met a woman that had a couple of dates with Bob Dylan, so of course everybody was very excited. You know at that time as Dylan was the, certainly the folk poet of the 60s. So uh, I said to her, what was it like? You know, what, what, how was he? Was he withdrawn? Where did you go? And so on. She said, oh, we just went for pizza and a movie. And, you know, he talked and it was just like a regular date. But every once in a while he had a little, like a golf pencil and a piece of paper in his pocket. And he wouldn't uh -huh. say anything, but he would just take it out and he would write something even while we were talking. He would write something uh -huh. down and then put it back in his pocket. And, yeah. uh, you know, she never saw what it was. But it was, uh -huh. you know, interesting that he was, we thought of this guy being so, um, just a genius in the, in the 
late 60s, of course, and then must be odd, must be weird, and so on. And she says, no, it was really just like any other date. Yeah. Well, um, I know him pretty well. Yeah. yeah. He, he's a, um, he can be nice. And so yeah. <laughs> I, I remember one time uh, he was on the balcony of one of the hotels on Sunset Strip with a typewriter and it, typing things out. But that's interesting that he would be writing things uh, down on a date like that. But, yeah. 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 Well, you recorded uh, with the birds, Mr. T. Marine Man, back in, was that 65? Around yes, that. it was. Yeah, around the time. And um, one thing I read was that he was in the, was he in the studio or he heard it before it was released and, and gave his seal of approval and really liked it? Yeah, he came to a, a rehearsal studio, he and Bobby Newirth, and we played it for him and uh, uh, they said, wow, you can dance to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that the, um, I'm thinking out loud here, that the birds with their sound, because as soon as the birds came on the radio, you knew it was the birds. And I'm sure much of it was your arranging and so on. But they, only, they almost created a sound brand that was theirs. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't easy to do, especially in those days. But I think it was really your influence with both the 12-string and your um, arranging abilities. Well, I think the bird sound evolved out of my banjo playing. I, I was primarily a banjo player with the Chad Mitchell Trio, and mm -hmm. when I got when I got the Rickenbacker, I I picked it like a banjo, so you can hear a rolling uh, arpeggio underneath a lot of the lead yeah, lines. Yeah. Then I got I got the idea from the lead lines from George Harrison because he would play lead the uh, the melody of the song up and down the neck on the on the G string octave pair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got that idea from him. So it's kind of a combination of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because um, um, our, our show is called uh, Music Biz 101 and More, wanted to ask you uh, some sort of business questions related going back sort of to the mid-60s that are kind of interesting. We had Carl Palmer on the on the show uh, about almost two years ago from Emerson Lake and Palmer, the, their drummer. And it, it was interesting because when uh, Carl got on the, sh on the show, Right before, he said, I'm, I don't really want to do this interview, but I'll do it, but only if you ask me questions that we can't find on Google. Um, if you can uh -huh. Google the questions, I'm, I'm going to just stop the interview and walk out and leave. So um, we're going to hopefully go <laughs> anti-Google on you in honor of Pete Seeger. How about that? In honor of Pete Seeger. Yeah. And his, you oh, know what's okay. funny? Is, is So Pete Seeger wouldn't use the computer, but, but you were sort of Mr. Tech guy yeah, with yeah. your briefcase you know, phone and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was always... I was always trying to get Pete to, to uh, get email, but he would never. He said he would. You know, he said his grandchildren were going to teach him how to do it, but he n he never did. And it was it would, would have made it nicer because he could have talked. To, I could have talked to him more. But yeah. uh, go ahead, ask okay. ask me questions. You you can't get the answer to uh, from Google. Okay. <laughs> so, so now I, I raise the, the the pressure on myself. So um, yeah. you you had a the birds. Your first manager was Jim Dixon. And there was a time when he wanted to be both your manager and producer. And so, yeah. from what I read, you guys went to Columbia Records, who was your label, and you wanted to have your then-producer, pr Terry Melcher, fired because Dickinson, I'm sorry, Dickinson, Dixon wanted to do both, but then in the end, Columbia didn't give the producing gig to Dixon, ended up giving it to Alan Stanton. Um, do you recall 
that uh, situation when you guys went up there and tried to kind of force out your producer? Yeah, well, uh, Jim Dixon is uh, was a record producer at World Pacific Records, so it was logical for him to be the producer of the birds, and he was the guy behind Mr. Tambourine Man, and he turned it on to Dylan, everything like that. So it made sense, but Terry Mel- uh, Columbia had a strict policy that they only used staff producers, and Terry was on the staff, so mm-hmm. he became the producer. Now, I personally loved Terry Melcher. I thought he had a great ear, especially for singles on AM radio. I thought he was he was responsible for the bird's success. Uh, David Crosby didn't get along with him. Dixon didn't get along with him, but, but I got along great with Terry, and I thought he was really good. So it was just more of a personal struggle and an ego trip, you know, that Dixon wanted to be the manager and the record producer. But he, he was not as good a record producer as Terry Melcher. Mm. And then Melcher ended up coming back years later and becoming your manager for a time, correct? Uh, um, record producer. But he didn't manage you guys? Because one thing, another thing I read was that um, he, he came back to produce you late, years later, but he said he insisted on also becoming your manager so that there wouldn't be uh, the uh, issue. I don't, I don't remember that. I don't remember Terry being our manager. Good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's chalk one up for Roger McGuinn and one negative down for the web. That's good. <laughs> um, then uh, you guys uh, decided to co-manage yourselves at one point. You let go um, Jim, Jim Dixon and Eddie Tinkner. Do you recall that, and why did you decide to do that? Well, we got this guy named Larry Spector for a while, and he was managing Hugh Mathakela and Peter Fonda, and we knew both of them, and we thought, well, you know, if he's doing a good job with them, he'll probably be great with us, but it turned out to be a financial disaster where he, <laughs> he got an advance from publishing it, and he took his 25% and quit. Oh. Wow. Okay. And, and, and you knew Hugh Masekela because of So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star because he was the trumpet player on that. Yeah. Did you know him before yeah. before you recorded that song? Yeah. Yeah, Crosby knew him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So um, let's, let's get back to the financial... Uh, horrendousness of, of that. So you had a manager, he came in, he basically took the money and ran. Um, how were you yeah. guys at that point? Were you guys, because this is still early rock and roll, so um, were, was it still the Wild West in terms of how managers and, and artists were uh, were between each other with uh, deals and between each other and how much money, who was getting what and all that? Well, I became the manager after Larry Spector left, and uh, I wasn't really prepared for it. I remember one time we got an offer from Mexico City for $10,000, and so we flew down there and did the concert. We didn't know it, but they arranged to have a riot, and they were breaking up wooden chairs and making them into spears, and um, the road manager had left the $10,000 and our passports in the dressing room, and when we finally got to safety, they were gone. We had Uh to stay in Mexico City for another week to get new passports, and we lost all the money, so I wasn't really a great manager. (laughs) After that, uh, let's see. I don't remember who, who we got for management. Uh, the Birds manager after Bernie Gelb. No, that that was me personally. Bernie Gelb was was after after Rolling Thunder. I quit in '73. The Birds ended in '73. I don't think we had a manager for a while. I don't remember a manager. Mm-hmm. Huh? We had an agent. Yeah, we had Ron Rainey from. Magna artist. Oh, I know Ron Rainey very well. 
Did you, what, was he your, your agent? Too? He actually was a roommate of our manager in Syracuse. And then okay, he became yeah, an agent. Uh, yeah, I knew him he very was well. Agent, yeah. For, yeah, first he was with um, APA. Right. And then he, he split off APA and started Magna uh, with, uh, um, with another guy. Right. And uh, he, he asked me if I would go with him. And, I, you know, I, I liked working with him, so I did. Mm -hmm. And we, we stayed with him for years until he became um, – he wanted to be a personal manager because there's more money in it and you don't have to do anything. <laughs> so, so he did, he did that and we, we broke up and, you know, so right. uh, I, I, I quit. I, I, I asked him not, not to be the manager anymore because he wasn't really doing anything. Nothing was happening. Right. We're over some rough, rough terrain here. I hope it doesn't make too much noise. No, it's okay. No, it it adds to the um, yeah. background fun Ambient. of the show. Ambient. Yes, ambiance. Right. Yes. Ambiance. Because a lot of people listen to this show as they get acupuncture and things like that. So I think uh, <laughs> oh, okay. a bumpy road okay. is perfect well, for that. Well, we're on the road. We're um, let's see what highway we're on. What's the name of our highway? Highway 13. Oh yeah, US 13, headed to Ocean City, Maryland. Ah. Which is 50, 55 miles up. It's a beautiful day so today. US, yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah, we're in Jersey. Oh, so you so, know. Yeah. You got the weather. <laughs> so when are you going to, uh, when, when, when is this going to run out of you, this road, being on the road and, and all of that? Uh, or well, you I just... love it. I love, I love it. Um, Camilla's driving. I'm in a conversion van with a, you know, like a 24 inch, uh, screen. We got Waze, you know, Waze, W-A-Z. Mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. We got Waves on the screen, and then uh, all these Gmails come down. They, you know, keep me up to date on what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm in the back. I'm navigating. <laughs> and, well, Cam Camilla's got uh, ways up. No, I'm talking on her phone, which, where she usually has ways. But we got, like, one, two, three, four, five GPS things going. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it looks like the space shuttle, you know, and it's really cool. <laughs> all right. And uh, so... I'm having a ball, and we, we've refined it down to I only play theaters, mm -hmm. and it's very comfortable. I, we worked it out so I only play every two days. Mm -hmm. I don't play every night. Right. Play a show, and then two days off and another show. And you're done uh, by 11. Yeah. Well, we start at 8. Yeah, usually out by 11. But the idea is to save my voice. Back in the birds, I was doing 200 shows a year, and my voice was getting down here. I, I couldn't hit any high notes. Yeah. Right. And uh, this is much better. So, and then my inspirations have been Ravi Shankar and, and Pete Seeger and Andre Segovia, and they all died at 94. They're all still working. Yeah. They're all still working. Yeah. Pete was uh, chopping wood 10 days before he died. Ravi Shankar did a gig 10 days before he died. And Andre Segovia was booked at Carnegie Hall when he was 94. Yeah. He didn't make the gig. Didn't make the gig because he died. <laughs> right. so, so, and, uh, you know, the idea is to die with your boots on. I, I want to die with my Rickenbacker on. <laughs> so uh, your birthday is July 13th, so you have at least uh, 18 years and a few months left. I'm hoping for it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. My, my, wife has, my wife has a collection of Russell Wright dishes. Now, uh, he, he was a guy who made dishes in the 50s and uh, in the 40s. 30s and 40s. I'm sorry, 30s and 40s. And they're classic, classic, you know, plates and cups and things now. And you can't find them anymore. The police are reported ahead. So <laughs> right. um, she, she was opening a drawer, and she had all these dishes. 
And she's going, oh, God, what am I going to do with all these dishes? And she got in her spirit, well, you got 30 more years to play with them. <laughs> 30 more years to play with them. Uh, that's, uh, we, this is a going thing when we talk about what we're going to do. We say, hmm. well, we got 30 more years to play with it. Right. That's very good. Do you bring the dishes with you on stage? <laughs> no, we, we leave the dishes home. Oh, okay. We bring, we bring some dishes with us on uh, not on stage, but we, you know, All right. We have some stuff on the road. We got glasses and things, uh, so you can have a little picnic. All right, that's kind of cool. Now, but, do people recognize you? Yeah, they recognize me if I have my hat on. Ah. As soon as I take, as soon as I take my hat off, they don't know me. I was at the Songwriters Hall of Fame when I inducted Tom Petty uh, a couple of years ago. It's 2016, and Lionel Richie, who's never seen me in person got off the elevator. He was about 50 feet away, and he pointed to me and said, I know who you are because I had my hat on. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you've probably seen, me, seen it on PBS or something. But right. um, i got to tell you a funny story. There was this place in Pennsylvania I was playing, and the stage was adjacent to the dressing room, and I worked the show with my hat on, and then I went to the dressing room, took it off, and I was putting my guitar away. And this lady, she had to jump on stage to get to the dressing room. She came into the dressing room, and she looked at me and said, where is he? <laughs> I, I pointed to the door and she said, oh, he, he's left already. What are you, the guitar tech? And I, I kind of nodded. All right, <laughs> sure. Why not go along with it? Yeah. Because so, I, I, did, I didn't have my hat on. Right. So is your, um, is your writing style or your process, is it one of a, a routine or is it just an inspiration that you get and then you go with it or... I mean, for writing varies, for so many it, years. It varies from song to song. The, um, the most frequent approach is to get a, a series of chords, play them over and over again, and hum a melody over that, mm -hmm. and then uh, put lyrics over the melody. So it, it's like a three-phase three uh, operation where you construct a song from chords, melody, and, and lyrics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your ideas will come just from whatever, from getting... Yeah. The news once once you get the, yeah, well, once you get the tune, yeah. Every every good songwriter I've ever talked to says they get it from outer space. You know, mm -hmm. it, it comes from somewhere outside of them. Right, right. And then, um, get, just getting back to who who is booking the shows that you do these days? Um, Skyline Online. Skyline uh, is a uh, a big uh, agency, and uh, is it Bruce, Bruce Houghton? Houghton is it? Bruce Houghton, yeah. Oh, okay. He runs uh, Hypebot.com. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yes, he does, yeah. And his ex-wife, Andrea, is our personal agent. Oh, that's interesting. So he mm -hmm. stayed in business with his ex-wife. Right. Wow. That's fortunate. That saved a few dollars, I'm sure. I'm Good sure. for that. But so, and you, you mentioned you go every couple days. So how many shows a year do you try and do? Well, I don't want to do more than 50, and um, I, I don't really stop stop people from, you know, what we do is just pick and choose the good ones, the nice theaters. they got to be a nice theater, and that cuts it down right there. It's, I'm not playing the uh, Indian casinos or mm -hmm. the festivals or the clubs or, you know, that, so that cuts like 75% of the offers down. So I just play, you know, I'm happy playing a couple of shows a week, whatever. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of your favorite theaters that you like playing around the country? Um... There's one called the, I think it's called the Hanover Theater in Massachusetts. It's just gorgeous. And, um, well, <clears throat> let's see, I played, 
I'm going going to be playing the Colonial Theater in um, Pennsylvania uh, mm-hmm. on the 25th t- tomorrow, and that that's where they shot the movie The Blob with <laughs> McQueen. <laughs> so I like I like that theater. That's a great one. And my wife is always waiting for the blob to come through the air vent. All right. So now <laughs> when you travel, you do basically solo acts? What I do is a one-man play. Mm-hmm. I tell stories. I set up the songs with stories, and it's, it's scripted. Like, mm-hmm. Springste- like Springsteen's show, to a degree. Yeah, yeah. I was doing it before that, though. It was going to say right. you probably came first. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So they right. use the sound system that's in the hall? Uh, yeah, we do. We, we we don't carry sound or lights or anything. We just I just carry guitars and uh, mm-hmm. some gear. That's right. pretty cool. Um, I've, I've recently written a couple, uh, I'm sorry, read a couple books about David Geffen. And I know you guys were on asylum uh, for a bird's reunion back around 72, 73. Um, what do you recall about that era and being in a, did you spit? Did you spill some of the plates? He's in the men's room. Oh. <laughs> are you there? What plates are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you recall about David Geffen back in the asylum uh, well, days? I, I didn't really get to know David Geffen. Uh, I met him. Uh, Crosby and I went to his office once when we were getting ready to do this album. And uh, we sort of talked about what we were going to do. And I showed him my briefcase telephone. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't terribly impressed. He thought it was uh, I'd wasted my money, but that was just I I liked it enough for it to be worth what I paid for it. So, you know, he, he and I never were, knew each other really. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Did what did you pay for that briefcase telephone? Three thousand. Really? Wow! In those when, days, yeah, I was gonna say some money. That's great. Now you and Crosby have had a. I guess a contentious relationship over the years because he was in the birds. Um, you helped, you kicked him out. Then you, you know, had reunions and such. Um, how, how is it? Does, is that, let's see, whenever you work with him or when you worked with him, did that tension help the creativity or was it just very difficult to work with in those circumstances? Um, well, when I first met David, I first met David when he was, uh, an actor at the Ashgrove in, um, I think it was a um, Samuel Beckett play called Endgame. It was a one-act play with two people in garbage cans, and he was the, gu- the male in the garbage can. There was a female in the garbage can. <laughs> They're supposed to be the mother and father. And they pop up and do their lines, and then their heads would go down, back down, and the lid would close. <laughs> so uh, I showed David a few chords around that time. He was just learning how to play guitar. And we went up to – he taught me how to drive. Oh, wow. <laughs> drive in L.A. Yeah. Remember, uh, he had this old Chevy with three-inch burlap seat belts that he got out of a DC-3, and he, he'd installed them himself. And he was really into safety and things back then. And then we, he taught uh, he, he me how to drive in L.A. Uh, on La Cienega Boulevard and Sunset, which is a steep, steep hill, and it was a thick shift. Hey. So I had never done that before, so I had to balance it. The clutch and the brake and the stick shift and get it back into first and not hit the car right. behind me and get get around the corner, which I was able to do. That it was sort of a a mean, a cruel sense of humor for him to take me up there to <laughs> teach me how to drive. But he took me up to Santa Barbara and we hung out for a while. And um, then I didn't see him again for another four years. And then he popped into the Troubadour when Gene Clark and I were writing songs. 
and we decided to get together and work do some stuff. And he was very friendly at first, you know. So we we got along fine. We even wrote songs together. But over the course of time, he wasn't getting his songs on our albums, and, and it was very irritating to him. So he became more and more dissatisfied with with the whole situation. And it, it got to the point where Chris and I decided to ask him to go away. Mm. Back then, who was deciding what songs would be on the albums? Would that mostly be you and Chris then, or uh, how did that work? Why was David not getting his tunes on there? Terry Melcher was uh, deciding what songs got on. Oh, okay. Mm. And, mm. and that was sort of just the, you guys agreed as a band that Terry's the ultimate decision maker. He's going to be the one who's going to decide what's on and what's not on? I guess so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was, it, I don't think it was a unanimous agreement. I, I, I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I guess David didn't. And so, um, so he was just becoming hard to work with. And at one point you, you and uh, Chris just told him to please leave the band. Yeah. yeah. And did, um, back then, uh, did you have a band agreement? Did you have a contract between yourselves as band members so that you could kick people out and then there would be compensation and things like that for a certain period of time? Uh, no, we didn't have a formal agreement. We, in fact, I don't think um, Chris and, and Michael Clark were signed to Columbia. Uh, it was just uh, David and Gene and I signed the original contract. But we didn't have a band contract. Uh, but we did give David some compensation when he left. So, mm. you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't unjust. Mm-hmm. Right. right, that's good. All right. In 91, you put out an album called Back From Rio. And Crosby was on it. Chris Hillman was on it. Tom Petty was on it. You had a lot, Elvis Costello. It was this huge sort of all-star, I guess, sort of, was it like a rebirth of uh, Roger McGuinn. I remember when the album came out and you had King of the Hill was a big hit that was on the radio. All about the makings of that album and how it came together, especially with all those artists. Well, I was on tour with Tom and Bob Dylan in Europe and Tom and I wrote a song, King of the Hill, and made a demo of it. And then uh, Randy Gersten somehow got a hold of the demo and showed it to Clive Davis and Clive signed me. And then we spent about six months writing in L.A. and Went in the studio and spent another few months recording it, and it was uh, came out very professional. It was like <laughs> I remember Pete Fornatel after it came out, he said, "You finally did it right." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, because that's a that's a great record. Because you had um, I'm just like uh, you had uh, the Heartbreakers on it because Mike Campbell was playing playing guitar and uh, Stan Lynch on drums. Um, Michael Penn was on it, Stan Ridgeway, Timothy B. Schmidt, who is one of my favorites uh, from the Eagles, Ben Montench. So you, you did have just a, a ton of really great people on that record. Must have been yeah, fun to yeah, make. Yeah, it was, it was, musically, it was wonderful. Yeah, I loved it. Mm. Mm. So what are you doing for uh, Pete's 100? Anything special? Let's see, what is it, May... Uh, 3rd. 3rd, May 3rd. Um, I'm going to be getting ready to get on the Queen Mary 2, where I'm going to give a couple of lectures ah. uh, from the, from New York to to Southampton. Wow. That's pretty that's cool. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's real cool. So let's let's talk about um, you're an artist who's in his uh, in his 70s, and you've had a, a great career because you, you've obviously had ups and downs, but some great successes, and you're, you've been able to 
survive as an artist and still be able to do it. Um, how have you, what, what do you, I guess, attest to your longevity and, and do you just perform these days? Do you, do you still record, you know, what you just mentioned, you'd give talks. What are all the different things that you do to bring in revenue? Well, uh, touring is uh, one of them, but um, we get some royalties and we get uh, other stuff. And I do write songs. There are new songs on my most recent CD called Sweet Memories, and that's available on Amazon and McGuinn.com. And we sell them at venues. And we call it a cottage industry. We, we started our own label about 15 or so years ago. And Camilla was looking at the books and saying, wow, the cottage industry paid for the cottage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. Are, do you are, is your music on streaming services, especially you know the the stuff from your own album? I'm sorry, from your own uh, label. Um, some of it is, and some of it isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't think streaming services pay very well, so but we get better revenue selling the physical CDs. And fortunately, the people who come to my concerts still play CDs. They don't. They're not the. Uh, they're not into Spotify and so on. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense. We had a discussion with. The president, I'm sorry, the COO of, of uh, Concord, Concord Music last week. Bowers. And suddenly, what? Uh, Bowers. What? B-A-R-R-O-W-S. Burroughs? But that wasn't him. Who, who was our name? guest last week? Him. Glenn. Glenn yeah. Barrows. Oh, B-A-R-R-O-S. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so we had, all right, so you're, you're enjoying this part of the show. Yeah. So we had Glenn Barrows, who's the COO of uh, Concord Music on well, last night. And a lot of his... Uh, artists who are on, you know, the Rounder label and other labels, um, of which would be a label like you, you would fit probably. Um, he mentioned uh, while they support streaming, a lot of the artists and a lot of the fans of this that style of music will call it AAA or Americana or what have you. Uh, like you just said, there's still a big audience out there who's still buying physical product that is not all streaming, even though streaming gets yeah. all the, the press these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're trying to, you know, uh, legis legis get streaming to pay a little better. I, I think um, Randall Wixon is involved in that. And I think uh, uh, Flo and Eddie, remember the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> right. the Turtles From guys, the Turtles. Right. Turtles guys had some litigation going. And it, right now it's not fair. And we, we prefer to just have uh, physical, physical things to sell. But there is some streaming. We signed up with The Orchard a while back, and there's some stuff available for streaming. Mm -hmm. And some of it isn't. So, some stuff uh, shows up on iTunes and different uh, outlets. We had a guest on not too long ago who uh, was the manager of King Crimson for a while. Uh -huh. And um, he spoke similarly to what you're saying, that it made sense to hold back that catalog from streaming services because it was still paying. They were still, obviously you get a lot more revenue from physical product than from a stream. And he was saying, oh, yeah. um, hold it back. And it's interesting because it was just released about two weeks ago or, or the, their current manager said in July, we're going to start coming out with the uh, King Crimson catalog on streaming services because uh, at least for King Crimson, the physical has, I don't want to say dried up, but is lowered, diminished, you know, yeah. is diminished to the point where they, they need to support streaming for that particular I see. Uh, artist. Well, if that ever happens, we'll probably deal with that. But right right now, it's a better deal to sell the physical product. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's fun to make. We, we make them, you know, we, we send them off to Oasis and uh, they, they print them up and we sell them. And they mm -hmm. sell on Amazon. You know, you've got worldwide distribution. 
and there's a thing called uh, what's that Shepherdsville, Kentucky thing? It's a one stop in mm-hmm. Shepherdsville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Buys from uh, CD Baby, and, and they they sell them in stores. So you know we we have brick and mortar as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so it makes sense at this stage in your career. Why why would you need a major label? You know you have all these yeah. services and you have your agent, so you don't need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the ratio of, of plays to pay with uh, Spotify is ridiculous. You know, like I was looking at some statistic. I think I put it on Twitter. I'm not sure the exact numbers now, but it was like hundreds of thousands of plays, and you get like $9. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't make sense. And what about vinyl? Do you put out for new releases? Uh, do you put out vinyl? Well, because we tour the way we do, we don't want to carry vinyl. Um, so we, we don't really carry it. We, we don't do vinyl because it's too heavy. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So in your space shuttle in which you are in right now, yeah. so you, you have the CDs. What other merch do you sell at your shows? That, that's it. We don't sell T-shirts. Or, we're thinking about maybe hats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about cow- cowboy hats like, like what you wear? Well, it's not a cowboy hat. It's a fedora, more like the 40s gangster movies. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. All right, that would be good. And you put a big, huge Roger McGuinn all across the whole thing. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, on the back or something. <laughs> I sign them personally. Well, it's hard to yeah. sign uh, uh, <laughs> hats. It takes a long time. The Sharpie doesn't want to go with the grain. You know, it's like... Right. Uh, right. Build a new Sharpie, I guess. So, uh, d- let's see. Uh, finally, um, just in terms of... Uh, because we talked about streaming and that. Uh, last last point is, do you get more revenue from your performance rights organization these days or from your publisher from the sale of, uh, you know, all the past back catalog? I think publishing pays more than performance mm-hmm. rights at this point, unless we play Europe, where, where they really have a good setup. They, they pay a lot. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, okay. So, um, any final thoughts about Pete Seeger? Well, he was a mentor. You know, he was a, he was an inspiration. He was what I wanted to do when I grew up, and now I'm doing it. You know, I've got four instruments, four instruments on stage. I'm telling stories and getting people to sing along. So, it, he was my role model, really. Oh, that's great. That's great. oh, I do have one final business question for you. I'm sorry about this. Um, one thing: uh, the trademark of the birds. That was something contentious at one point in the 80s, was it not, in which uh, a former member, Michael Clark, was trying to get a trademark, and you had at one point been turned down for the trademark of the birds, then you and, I guess it was Crosby, uh, tried to get it back. Can you get into that a bit? Yeah, there's this guy named Steve Green, and he had the bogus birds with Michael Clark, and uh, Crosby bought it, finally. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, he was able to, it's, it's interesting, nobody had tried to trademark, you know, going back to 64, um, nobody had tried to trademark the band name, The Birds, or been successful. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's all done now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, all right. Well, our interview is just about all done now as well. Yep. Okay. It's well, a pleasure. Fun talking to you guys. I, I don't know if you could Google that stuff or not, but... If you can, then that's our fault, not your fault. <laughs> and, if, and if you can, well, you've been very gracious to just be Google well, for I would, us. I would never tell anybody I'm going to walk out if it's on Google. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. And, he, and uh, He was quite a guy, Carl Palmer. Yeah. He had, he had had a lot of coffee before that interview. Yeah. He, I uh, think, uh-huh. 
Yeah, very, very energetic. So, okay. okay. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank Camilla for uh, Driving. You know, helping Thank put you, this Thank you, Camilla. Together. Those things. Thank you. Oh, I, I can, wait a minute. I can put you on. Uh, okay. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. So that was Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Yes, it Roger was. It was McLean. very interesting. That was pretty interesting. A walk in time, but it was very interesting. Yeah. There's some things that he had a couple interesting things. This I think um, these are hard to do, Ashley, some of these interviews, because uh, you're in the moment. You're trying to find the next thing to say, and then you come up, you know, the next question to ask. And then you really hope sometimes that you get a, a lengthy answer. And yeah, that sometimes, he elaborates. Yeah, and sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. And if you right. don't. I go, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've had a couple like that. Uh, he was pretty, I keep wanting to call him Jim. Um Roger was actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, we had an interview with Ken Mansfield that you can listen to the podcast, wrote a book about uh, the roof. Uh, Concert the, and, of the and, Beatles. And that show began with yeses and nos. Yeah. And we finally loosened him up. I think uh, Ashley got him drunk. And then I think uh, that helped him. Could have been. Yeah, very, much, very well could have been. And then after that, we had uh, just last week with Glenn Barrows. Mm-hmm. But couldn't remember his name. And thank you. For that, you're very, we are very brilliant welcome. man, and uh, that began like that as well, and right. then it, it kind of loosened up. So, yeah, um, but this is this has been really great. So, we hope our listeners enjoyed our interview with Roger McGuinn, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Roger McGuinn. Mm-hmm. I hope some people who uh, don't know anything about the birds goes Google, yeah, go Google uh, YouTube. I would assume the birds catalog. My Spotify is acting up, so I can't get on. I would assume the birds catalog is all available oh, on Spotify. Yes. All that stuff. Yes. So look up there. So you want to be a rock and roll star? Turn, turn, turn. Eight miles high was a groundbreaking mm-hmm. song. Mr. Tambourine Man, written by Dylan. Those are the four biggest hits I can think of right, right. now. They had more, but uh, interesting stuff. And then listen to Tom Petty after you listen to some singing by Roger McGuinn and you'll totally see the connection between the two. Then listen to some REM and you'll, and you'll hear the, uh, twangy guitar Mm -hmm. from, uh, Roger McGuinn in the REM plane as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. goes all the way through. So Ashley, thank you so much for engineering this program for us, this radio program. Appreciate it. <laughs> she was in supposed her to radio say, voice, she yeah, nodded. yeah, she really speaks well when it comes to radio and we appreciate her wordiness at times. She's a little bit too verbose and it kind of takes the spotlight away from Dr. Stabon Marconi and myself. Right. And then Dr. Stabon, thank you for well, thank you all you too. brought on. Professor today. David Kirkfield. You started this very well with your memories of opening for the birds way mm-hmm. back then. And then but, I did meet him. Yes. And of which he had no recollection, which was... Well, he did right away. He said... Oh, remember the briefcase, phone. right. Yeah, yeah briefcase uh, right. phones. I don't know where, if he took it 100 places, who knows. Right. But um, I'm glad I did remember phone. that. I think it, as they say in the business, it broke the ice. Yes, there was ice and it was broken. And that's all due to Dr. Esteban Marconi, who's an icebreaker. And if I don't stop, I'm gonna, he's going to be a jawbreaker. He's going to bust my jaw. Last week's guest was Ken Vermaglich, super agent from UTA. And after this, May 8th, 
2019. We will not have a live show. It will be pre-recorded because Dr. Marconi will be on assignment, and I will be in coming Nashville, back from Tennessee. Assignment. You'll be coming back from assignment. I, I will be coming back from assignment, going to Nashville to record a bunch of these shows to air all summer long Correct. on Brave New Radio. So for Dr. Stavon Marconi, I'm Professor David Kirk Philp. We want to thank you for listening to Brave New Radio. You are the best listeners in all of America and on all of the World Wide Web. And at the ever, end of every show, we do not say hello. Ashley, what do you think of that? Would that be silly to say hello at the end of every show? She agrees that that would be silly. What she wants us to do. She's really here. Yeah, she is here. She's just a cat got her tongue today. So we want to thank her again, Ashley Veltner. And uh, at the end of every show, we say adios. I dare you to not edit this, Ashley. This is live. This is pre-recorded. Okay, coming up next, some soft jazz on Brave New Radio.